we have a list of the the kind of the common topics that we're seeing right now, but obviously we're we're open to hearing any topics okay. that, that people are interested in. So uh, we have the markets looking at what's happened with the markets over the past year and also looking forward. We have inflation as a topic, uh, and that relates also to the Fed and actions taken by the Fed. We also have unemployment, the new infrastructure bill on the list. There's, there's of course, uh, Omicron, Omicron. I'm not sure what the correct pronunciation is, but someone can correct me if, if they're familiar with, with how I should be saying that. And then we have the topic of, uh, cryptocurrencies as, as well on our, on our list here. So if there's any topics from the group, feel free to raise your hand or, or chime in now or, or we can also wait until you're ready to ask a question and, and we can let you in at that point. Well, anybody have any, we, Kyle failed to mention the, 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 uh, my my current obsession with carbon credits and cap and trade and what the hell does that mean and what impact does that have on anything since it's a pretty good portion of the infrastructure bill. So that was also on the agenda. Yeah, I'd say that falls under the category of the infrastructure bill. All right. Cool. Good. Well, we can we can dive right in. Good. Good. Nijoni, take it away. You're our, our studious researcher, uh, and the youngest member are our staff, so you should be the smartest. Oh, I don't know about <laughs> that, but I appreciate that. <laughs> well, actually, both, both Karen and I were both kind of researching somewhat of the same thing, so I'm sure, I'm sure we'll find ways to, to complement each other. Uh, the two of us were mainly discussing the, uh, portions of the infrastructure bill here. On, you know, carbon credits as well as, you know, just the different aspects of climate protection that was introduced in this infrastructure bill. Where would you like me to start, Rob? You were very, I remember you being very interested about carbon credits specifically. Well, um, what are they? What is a carbon credit? Carbon credits are essentially permits that private companies are given to use a certain amount of, uh, Greenhouse gases, basically, that they're allowed to emit like a certain amount of greenhouse gases. And so each, each credit is equal to one ton of carbon dioxide. And so those are used and a certain number are given to companies each year. And so there has been this trading system that's kind of developed around it called the cap and trade program, which in, in Europe is, is more of a formalized institution. In the United States, it's a bit smaller because it, it only exists in some states in the U.S., California being one of the main ones that like has their own cap and trade system that they've developed. Um, basically where this is a system where people can, if, if you don't use all of your carbon credits, you can sell them to other companies for a profit. And part of this is built to incentivize companies not using all of their carbon credits and being able to sell it and, and profit off of it. And, and there's lots of, um, there's lots of differing opinions on how that works in practice as opposed to theory. Uh, it, it is intended to reduce uh, carbon use overall. 
they, there's a there's a a standard that's established as to how much pollute how much carbon it's not just carbon dioxide anymore it's any form of carbon it used to just be carbon dioxide and and they establish a base level who they is and how they do it is an unknown I don't know if there are any scientists I'm always interested in if 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 there's any science behind this any measurement per se um, uh, but once a base level of of pollution is established, it's reduced uh, uh, by a certain percent every year. And, and someone has to measure how much pollution is coming out, which this mainly applies to uh, a coal fire power plants. Mm-hmm. The, 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 for the most part. Um, and part of the infrastructure bill is created a, a economic incentive to use new technology to capture the carbon that would have otherwise gone in the air and put it in the ground. That's called sequestering, carbon sequestering. And um, I don't know there's I don't I don't know how many billions of dollars, a billion here, a billion there, what difference does it make anymore? But there's a lot of money that is 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 to be used for Capturing the carbon and putting it in the ground. Now, they they currently it's, there's only a very small amount of carbon that's actually captured and put into the ground in the last 15 years, and the infrastructure for doing it in the U.S. is has by and large uh, not not performed. Would you say that's correct, Najoni? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a total of about a dozen facilities in the United States, which, which, which basically function for that purpose. And, and some of them aren't even functional because of technical problems, uh, with plants. There's, so, uh, it's, it's a system that for one, it's just, it's not profitable and there's been very little allocated to it in the past. And so that's one big thing that this bill has changed. They're allocating a $12 billion towards making an investment in that and actually attempting to make it um, something that is profitable and incentivized to, to grow. Right. The carbon sequestering is the process of, of capturing. They're also talking about building plants that have big giant fans, if you can believe it, that suck air in and clean the carbon out of the air. And um, then, then uh, it sounds a little bit like the windmills on the ocean. You know, the concept of putting the whole sea of, of windmills, which which had created its own set of problems. The issue is they don't really know. You have to find a safe place to put the carbon in the ground. One place that carbon is being used now in the ground is oil and gas development is it's actually a, a form of fracking is when they use carbon now and they put it in the ground which is the the only place that they know what to do with it because they haven't figured out how to shoot it off into space yet on one of one of those private rockets so they have to find a safe place to put it in the ground that doesn't like have like geological consequences, which of course is the problem with a lot of the injection of gas into the ground to enhance oil production and the, and the out, the output from, from that is, 
definitely there are a lot of people who question whether that's a good thing for the the water table and the seismic activity, et cetera. So, Rod, I'm sorry, is that being um, looked at or tracked um, by uh, what the carbon, what damage it is doing? It's very difficult to say that much of it is being tracked at all, uh, whether the amount is being tracked or the effect. There's so many factors, like Nijoni was saying, like the plants that have been built, there are very few of them that are functional because the technical challenges are so huge. We have these ideas about it'd be great to not have as much carbon in the air. And it's the, it, the, the people who are the biggest supporters of the carbon tax credits is who, Karen? Who are the biggest supporters? The coal industry. That, and it's one of the criticisms because it basically helps perpetuate coal use and fossil fuel use. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit hard to say. I, I would say I don't like the science of it. I don't, I don't really know much about how much research has been collected about the impact of these things. The technology is, so it's a very, I don't know how big of a bet it is, but is it likely from from our perspective as investors what are we interested in besides the health of the planet of course is is it going to actually reduce carbon overall globally right will an act of congress impact the level of con- uh, or of the eu whichever uh, the EU, whatever they call themselves, the, the plenary body. Is that, is that effective at reducing carbon? And if it's not, what is? And, and, uh, one thing that we've come up with is the movement, which you can see every day in the news, in the business news, is the movement towards electric vehicles, right? Like as a way of, of reducing that form of carbon emission, which which connotes a huge increase in the elect, electric electricity demand, right? And and Kyle has done some research, and we all are aware of the problems that California has had with with generating or distributing power, and Texas, right. But I do think, interestingly, Kyle was sharing anecdotally yesterday with a client about his sister's experience in California with, you know, the timing and when you can charge a Tesla, for example, when you can't due to the power grid. Well, I, th- I think that's part of what's behind the infrastructure bill and the the amount of money that they're putting towards improving the electrical vehicle infrastructure is that in California, when they're having rolling blackouts or they're having it's what's called surge pricing. So certain times of day when it's peak energy usage, you're unable to charge your vehicle or you pay more to charge your vehicle. Or if you run your air conditioner in the middle of the day, it, it costs you more money. And so if you're an electric vehicle user, this is important to you because you need to charge your vehicle while you're at work or you drive to work and now you have to charge, but it costs you more money. And so part of the infrastructure bill is, is improving these issues by improving the electrical grids or 
you know, other means of electrical production. So, well, so if they're using generators uh, of some sort besides just the electrical, but they're using a generator, what powers the generators, right? Yes, that is the question. What does power right. the generators? I mean, yeah, so either gasoline or coal. I mean, I mean, theory, and, and all, so, so the more electricity, um, that they're trying to get people to go to, you have, there has to be a way that it's not coming from the generator, the coal, the, uh, you know, or the gasoline. Correct. And so, uh, so, but yeah, so where, so what do, you know, they're. We, I, I would, um, I would say that it, it becomes much like an investment portfolio in that there's going to be a diverse set of sources for electrical production. And it, it's not all going to be a hundred percent wind or solar. There's going to be other sources of pr- production, uh, from various places. There's something we talked about earlier today when we, we were talking about developments in nuclear technologies or, you know, technology related to nuclear fusion. We've actually We've invested some in a company, a very small amounts, uh, with a client, but invested some in a company that, that specializes in nuclear fusion type of energy harvesting. And it's just, it's, it's going to be a mix of places. There's not going to be no coal power anymore or, or all solar. It's going to be a mix of sources that, that power everything we use. So there are about 70 companies that are researching nuclear fusion, which whose byproduct is not a bunch of toxic radioactive waste. Um, it's w- water is, I think, the byproduct, byproduct of nuclear fusion. It's, and, and there are many, many companies, most of whom are private, uh, now that, um, uh, just in the news today, I, I can't remember which hedge fund person put, a, a, you know, a couple of billion dollars into a, a, one of the startup nuclear fusion companies. So clearly, if if we're going to have millions of more electric vehicles, and and we we have a we need a re- reliable distribution network and a source that's not carbon producing, it's very hard to imagine it without some kind of nuclear oriented power. I, I did, the numbers just don't add up without that factor. Do you, do you disagree, Kyle? I don't disagree. And that's what I was speaking to was saying that it has to be more than just wind and solar and the current options we have. It has to be something else. The, the issue is that, um, the operation of them, that is, they're developing very small modular types of power generating plants that don't have the sort of the meltdown that we're used to thinking of in terms of Three Mile Island or all the other Chernobyl or all the other things. And obviously none of them have been perfected because they're not in the marketplace yet, right? We're not there yet, but I think you'll see a lot more discussion about types of, of nuclear power because to go with however many billion of people on the planet and to, to have everyone have enough power to, you know, uh, 
better their own lifestyle, which of course is the common denominator of human beings is to improve their, they and their family standard of living, which, which is, you know, actually uh, ties into a discussion we're trying to stay away from, uh, about, about the distribution of COVID vaccines that we, we try and stay away from that discussion in the office and during this discussion, but is how, how do you separate the wealthy nations, you know, who are asking the poorer nations to, let's say, give up developmental, uh, uh, impetus in order to not throw more carbon into the atmosphere when, when our, our economies are the main culprits, right? So there are also ethical issues about fairness that, that come into play. And, um, you know, we're optimists. There's, their technology is here to stay. And as whatever, however we feel about it personally, they're, they're to generate that kind of electricity without increasing carbon is, has got to take some t- technology, some technological, you know, breakthrough, which is, which is an investment opportunity. And always has been right. just like general electric or whatever. It's, it's a, a part of everything we're doing here is we have to, we have to take everything that goes on in the world and then think about whether or not it makes sense as an investment opportunity. And a lot, a lot, a lot of things don't <laughs> make sense as an investment opportunity, but there are many, many areas where we think about the world changing, uh, present a lot of investment opportunities as well. So let's see if there are any questions before we move on from the, the climate and the carbon. And, uh, I apologize because I promised to wait to have this discussion, but, um, we do have a raised hand. Steve, no, do you have a question? Great. Or, or Katie, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking about buying an electric car and I've done some research and what, what I found is, um, or what I've decided is to hold off because of the mining they do for some of the ingredients. It's the same as solar, um, that is, you know, not sustainable. And because of the batteries, I was, you know, I, I don't know if that is worse getting a new electric car or waiting to get one that is more sustainable than the ones are now. Um, but I don't know about that. And the same with solar because of the ingredients they're using, they're mining for it. They're using oil products to produce it. And so uh, weighing, I don't know how to weigh that out. There is a movie called planet of the humans that I watched and I don't know how biased it is, but um, I did get quite a bit of information from that. Steve? Yeah, I have a thought about this. It seems to me that we're moving in a direction that our supply of electrical demand is going to far outreach our ability to produce the electricity to supply the demand. Uh, And you can look at that uh, from the standpoint that GM and Ford are both moving in this direction. And, of course, Tesla's already there, but a very small part of the overall vehicle market. So we're putting ourselves into a position where where it could very well be the problem that California is having now could be a far-reaching problem that could reach all across the country. 
country as we have demand for more and more electricity and an inability to supply it. The other thing that that I had recently read about was that some of the batteries or the batteries are made with a product of rare earth that is supplied by China only so that our national security can be handed over to China uh, as we convert with our whole nation from a oil-based uh, generated fuel to a electric generated to electric built um, depending on a foreign source for material maybe rob can commute can comment on that well you know the the they're they're all important statements the rare earths that are used the source the diversity of sources i mean there are there is a rare earth mine in new mexico that has been shut down for decades because of various regulatory issues uh, and, and and so china doesn't have those constraints um uh the thing about the supply of electricity and the demand what normally happens when a market op- operates is that prices go up right if you have a lot of demand and not that much supply prices go up which is exactly what you see in europe and as having, and I'm back to the sort of the cap and trade and the whole carbon credit, because they've had that in place. They actually enforce it to a much greater degree than here in the U.S. And as a result, Europe's, the price of electricity in Europe is, is, is unbelievably high. It's like tripled in the last decade. And Germany, which is dependent on manufacturing, um, you know, is losing its, some of its competitive edge in, in industrial production because the cost of electricity is so high. And we were going to talk about a little bit about natural gas and the situation in the Ukraine, you know, with, with Russia sort of, uh, doing its political kind of military moves on the border with Ukraine for, for the second or third time. And the, the impact of the supply of electricity, but also natural gas, right? Of heating, heating gas for Europe, which, which has been a, a real bone of contention, both economically and politically for the last five years in terms of the, the pipelines is Europe, Europe is dependent on the import of natural gas. And so, uh, uh it's a, it's a very interesting situation, you know, in World War II, one of the reasons that the Japanese became so militaristic and that they were able to be, the Japanese population was able to be swayed into going to war was because they were 100% dependent on the import of oil. And oil was cut off. The, the threat and the embargo of oil into Japan is, is you know, I can't, can't say it's the only reason that they were pushed, but it's, it was one of the main economic uh, uh, motivations but behind going to war was for them to secure their sources of oil. And, to, and so, to control additional resources. Right. So, um, you know, it would be great if we had a technological solution to the generation of electricity that was not polluting, right? 
that would that would decentralize that would defuse the political tension that would reduce the carbon emissions it would make Katie's decision about when to get electric car a little bit easier which is very important and um and so it, it does come back to the ability of human beings to invent it's it's not like we're going to go backwards as a society and you know the easiest solution to car to to global warming to reducing carbon is for people to travel less you just everybody just don't drive or go in an airplane unless it's like an emergency and that's we saw that during the beginning of covid right when the air got clean in china and and in the us and the price of oil went way down and people just weren't traveling and so we tend to forget the consumption side of the equation is a variable it's not just the supply now steve smith granted has to travel because he lives in a very beautiful place but he needs to come to santa fe often so that's important but with that exception i'm just of course joking but so so energy and politics are 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 inextricably entwined Go ahead. I do. Maybe. We do have another oh. follow-up question before we move oh. on to the next subject. I was about um, to move us on, Contessa. Just one last thing. Um, there's a, a question here of an example. If we have any examples of heavily subsidized government initiatives that have a positive return on investment. So has anything been established that has actually been a good return? Well, <clears throat> thank you. I, I, I think a, a good place to start, and we used to talk about this in the the earlier days of of Tesla, and also I'm trying to think of what the name of the solar business that was absorbed by the car company. Uh, there was the solar business owned by Elon Musk as well that was absorbed, and they basically survived the early days of Tesla. They survived on government credits, as did the solar company. And as time went on, they were able to ramp up and move into self-sufficiency in many ways. And so, I mean, I would see that as a, as a very positive investment where the government essentially subsidized the whole industry, which allowed it to survive and, and move forward. And we see that electric vehicles and solar systems are basically everywhere now and have been very successful investments to an extent, uh, as, you know, as subsidized by the government. So I think that would be a kind of the easy example of it. Also, medical research that's funded by the government mm-hmm. that, that has spun off, you know, different biotech industries um, uh, is probably another example. But there's not a lot. I, I don't really know what the, the basic research, you know, that's a function of a, that's sort of a long-term investment function is when the government can fund things that don't have immediate economic benefit, but that has uh, spin-offs um, uh, would be another example in, in the medical field. Yeah, we've been, we were trying to look at a way to invest in the, the bionic kidney, which is an, which is a newer technology that's coming out and you obviously, you can't invest in it because it's all government funded through like joint partnerships and kind of private ventures. But anyway, it's a, 
it's things like that that come up that you don't invest in early on that eventually become, you know, positive investment vehicles later, later on down the road. Shall we move on to other topics that are of, uh, we can, uh, maybe a place we could go to is we could talk a little bit about unemployment. I think that's a, a topic. It'd be a great way we can get Karen involved here. Hopefully if that's still a topic on your mind, Karen, um, sure, I'm happy to talk yeah. about that. So we've seen basically unemployment drop down to 4.6%, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, you can fact check me there in case I'm incorrect, but so we've seen unemployment drop down considerably and we see a lot of open jobs and, and Karen has some thoughts on that. Thanks. I think, you know, there are several things happening and that uh, economists are looking at right now. And as Kyle said, unemployment, it was at 4.8% in September, dropped down to 4.6% in October. Uh, I believe we're waiting for more jobs, uh, job numbers on Friday, um, payroll numbers. Um, we were up about 534,000 jobs in November, but the gap that we're seeing, and I'm sure all of you I know locally were feeling it. You go into restaurants, you go into, you know, your pharmacy, what have you. The lines are longer. The wait for food is longer. There are signs all over town saying we're hiring. And we've been reading for months about, you know, the um, inability for employers to find enough enough willing sources of labor. Uh, and that's coming from a few places. You know, I think we read more last year about people who've had to leave the job force, women and um, heavily impacted by a lack of childcare. But now some numbers are coming out about um, those who arise in entrepreneurs and the number of self-employed. So for example, uh, in the last months from January through October, there were 4.54 million applications for new businesses for federal tax ID numbers. And that's a 56% increase from 2019. So I know we have some young clients who have said, you know, I've had a number of employers that I haven't really enjoyed um, over the last few jobs. I'm going to go start my own business based on this degree, this past job experience that I have. Um, the number of those self-employed has increased dramatically. People are moving into consulting roles, small retail. I'm sure everyone's read about the rise in, um, you know, artists who are selling their whatever their product is, their art um, on Etsy. That increased during the pandemic uh, and small business numbers. Um, and then there's been, according to the Labor Department, there's been a rise in self-employment of 500,000 since 2008. It's an increase of about 6%. Um, and unemployment overall is still 3% lower than before the pandemic. Um, so there, you know, there was a thought uh, as we went into September and the additional unemployment benefits were coming to an end that we would start to see people coming back into the job force. Some economists are now thinking that, well, there was a buffer, you know, people had this savings we had, um, seen over the last year. And so now they're thinking that coming into the end of the year as that buffer is reduced, that people are going to have to start coming back to work. Um, so, there are those who are much more 
positive coming into the end of the year and thinking that the numbers will, of people coming back to work will increase in 2022. But, you know, I think it, it presents, uh, an interesting, uh, dialogue and, and, uh, you know, just outlook as we look forward to what all those new entrepreneurs will and self-employed, what that will look like um, in the future, uh, the change in, in our economy, how people work. Um, I, I don't know, honestly, how so many people can afford individual health care. That's a question I have um, because the rates are exorbitant. Um, but perhaps if they're saving on child care, for example, they can afford to pay more toward healthcare. Uh, I don't know but how that trade-off works. There, there was something in one of the articles you shared, Karen, that that I found really fascinating is that the rate in which people are quitting their jobs is accelerating currently. Yeah. And so we saw a 7% increase from July to August, which I think is the most recent data that we have on, on people quitting their jobs. And really the, there's – there's something occurring where people have a a plethora of choices when it comes to jobs right now, where they're in their job and they're seeing uh, employers offer higher wages at at other companies, and so it makes it a great time to quit your job and try something new. And and increasingly, people are making that jump while also taking time to get back to work. So they're, mm-hmm. they're quitting their job knowing that there's something out there for them without actually choosing a new job immediately. So I just, I just found it pretty, pretty interesting. And so, so yeah, 4.3 million people quit their right. jobs. And I think what's of, interesting is that didn't include those who else. are retiring. Mm-hmm. The, that was excluding retirees. Correct. Which is huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's and, an interesting trend. And you can see in the statistics that the lower wage earners are the that's where the fastest wage growth is. And so people on the lowest end of the wage scale are moving up in wages the quickest. And it's really a a people are choosing not to go to work and and so you have to continue to entice them with with higher wages. And it's causing more people to quit their jobs as well. So it sort of has double double impacts. So let me ask a question about that. Is that enough to reduce the inequity gap in the country between the wealthy and the sort of the working poor? Is, or is I, it- I, w- I was trying to find the chart before this, but the answer is no. But the the highest earners, those earning over four hundred thousand, which is sort of the the common benchmark in the U.S. right now for the highest earners, those earning over four hundred thousand actually saw a decrease in their wages over the past period, over the past year, and so you're actually seeing them decline slowly in wages. But the gap is the gap is so wide that it's it's nowhere near. I mean, really starting to close any of that. The, the gap is likely getting wider because of the um, the appreciation of stocks and real mm-hmm. estate, which are yeah, owned by the high weight. Exactly. And they said that's a big portion of the reason that the highest earners are moving downward is that they're choosing other forms of compensation, such as stock options. So, 
a question with all of that, with when so many people that are quitting um, to, to go into whatever, another field or whatever, and they don't go back to work um, for a while, um, some people, you know, getting unemployment, how does that affect out of all those three, you know, however many uh, million you were saying, if how many of those on um, collect um, unemployment and how does that affect the rest? Yeah, the, the biggest thing to note is that people who are quitting their jobs don't receive unemployment benefits. Because so, oh, right, but, yeah, you you have to be you have to be five. you have to be let go, and so uh, right. The, right. these are all people that that are not using any of the support systems. I mean, they may have other support systems, yeah, but they're not using okay. directly unemployment benefits, and so there's not a strain on 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 the tax system because of these people. Okay. who just they're making a conscious choice to do something different. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you. We have about 12 minutes left in our session. I don't know what we want to cover for the final topic. We could take a poll. If anybody has specific topic they'd like us to cover. We also had, we had cryptocurrencies. We had, um, what else did we have on our, we have, our we, have the, we have the markets, we have inflation. And then of course, Omicron, Omicron. Which sounds to me like a transformer. I don't know if those who have kids. Here we go. We had a, what, what was the comment here? I would, I think inflation is a, mm. a topic that ought to be, uh, discussed. Uh, is it here to stay? Is it going to be temporary? Uh, how do you hedge against it? Well, it depends on, you know, Chairman, uh, Powell, Jerome Powell was saying this week that he, in his own, way as he has to carefully parse his words, you know, clarified the Fed's meaning of transitory rather than just saying we were wrong. And then of course they were kind of, you know, brought to the carpet for being wrong and, and his uh, justification behind that was all the various issues with the supply chain um, bottlenecks. But basically they did <laughs> refine shall we say their position and he sees inflation to be uh an issue through uh much of 2022. Well, I think um I think we see inflation as a sustained issue but not at the levels in which we've seen recently that those were probably peak inflation numbers and the the Fed's goal of tapering when we look at their tapering efforts is to start to reduce the amount of cash in the system, right? And so we have, we have a large amount of cash that's in the system and they're trying to reduce that cash. I mean, there's, there's simply too much cash and not enough goods within the system, which is a big part of the inflation. And that's what will make inflation sustained as we, as we continue to have that too much cash in the system. Whereas there's, there are the pieces which are only temporary, right, which are, are supply chain related, where eventually supply chains should get worked out. Uh, who knows? Sorry, there's a, a fly there. Uh, there, are, there are supply <laughs> chain issues that, that should get worked out. And we've already seen it with the, the uh, 
the freighters, right? We've seen freight rates come down. We're seeing additional truckers start to, to start to work again. And so there's a lot of places where some of those supply chain issues are, are trying to get resolved. Um, so. And we oh, saw uh, that with the manufacturing, uh, factory index that came out this week where there's been an increase from October to November showing that there could be an easing, a beginning of an ease in that backlog. Now the, there was, there was a question that came in. So when we think about how do we, how do we deal with inflation and how do we invest in an in inflationary uh, world? There was a question that came in around I bonds and the current rate on I bonds, I think is over 7%. Now I bonds are, Really great. They're, they're a good product. Uh, you can only purchase I-bonds from the government. So you, there's a, there's a website. Uh, I encourage any of you who have excess cash around, you can, you can look at this. Actually, I, I can't encourage anyone. I don't, you should talk to your advisor if you have interest <laughs> in purchasing I-bond. Uh, the, the thing about I-bonds to remember is you can only buy as an individual, you can only buy, I think, $10,000. So while it's it's really great to earn seven percent, you're only going to get that uh, with ten thousand dollars, and for many people that's very impactful, and for others it's it's less significant. But it's certainly something to to consider as an investment strategy when looking at inflation. Uh, I try to hold them for five years too. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, and I mean there's 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 various other benefits. Uh, to owning I bonds and there's also uh there's also risks as well. So I I certainly especially you Gary, I encourage you to call your advisor and discuss whether or not I bonds may be right for you. I, I've had uh, some experience with I bonds uh, <laughs> through a through a trust and uh you know it, it's it's fascinating. The website is very good, but it takes a little while to learn it. But it's not that hard once you do. And, uh, I think that, you know, it's worth, like you said, looking at it. I wouldn't look at it now myself, but, uh, I think that you're making good suggestions and it's, and it's not that hard once, but you have to be willing to spend some time to figure it out yourself, unfortunately. Well, a lot of people are doing that already with crypto these days. So yeah, right. I think yep, the other areas, Gary, to answer your question, Again, consult your advisor. That's our disclaimer. But, um, you know, historically, commodities and real estate have performed really well uh, during times of inflation. Uh, so we're seeing numbers. Obviously, we've seen housing uh, is up. Housing prices are up about 20%. Economists are saying that uh, the next sort of impact to inflation uh, could be rent prices. Um, which we're seeing increase. I think Albuquerque over the last year, rent prices for a one bedroom went up by 25%. Um, and, you know, the numbers are higher in different areas of the country, uh, lower in others, but that's high for New Mexico, obviously. Uh, but they're saying that rent prices could have uh, a larger impact potentially on inflation than the used uh, car and truck prices did. Uh, which was uh-huh. an outsized impact. 
So, so Najoni, or I'm sorry, Karen, were you saying that you saw cryptocurrency as one of the ways to hedge against inflation? Let me say I was not saying that. Let me say that clearly. No, I was saying that people take the time to go buy crypto online. They learn that so they could probably learn the IBON system. Yes. Let me clarify. She was comparing the purchasing process. Yes. Between I-bonds to creating a cryptocurrency account. Exactly. Cryptocurrencies. Well, on that score, I have uh, not a financial advisor, but a family member who does that for me. There you go. Very, (laughs) very well. And it took him a while to learn it, but I think it is worth learning about, but you need a lot of time. We're, we're always happy to talk cryptocurrencies for those of you interested in trading cryptocurrencies. We, we can set up separate conversations for that. Um, before we run out of time, we had a question about the market, just the level of volatility right now. Is it to be expected? Um, and, you know, certainly I'm sure Kyle and Rob would want to speak to this as well. But I think, you know, a lot of what we're seeing even this week has been um, we've seen a very strong reaction to the variant, which was one of the other topics on our list. Um, and, you know, we saw Biden come out and say that, you know, he thought that it should not be something to have uh, it, an outsized effect on the market or the economy. We're already looking at um, Pfizer and Moderna and all of the pharmaceutical companies respond. Um, but it 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 has been extremely volatile. But I don't know that it's any right now that it's any different than it was, you know, than it's been all year. Um, and you know, the moment that the Fed, Monday, you know, there was news of the variant. Tuesday, the Fed came out saying, look, we're going to do everything we can to support the market. Today, there's a case in California, so there's a momentary panic. And then, you know, again, I think the pharmaceutical companies, FDA just approved Merck's COVID pill. Um, and so um, I think we're going to see this for a while. Oh, I'm I'm happy to talk about volatility. I I, I think the, the the big thing that we look at when when we're thinking of volatility is the fact that the market had run up. Uh, I mean, it was basically up 50% over a two-year basis when we look at the stock market, and so having a pullback of six ten percent is is not that unusual when we go from the S&P being up 27% to where we're at today being up 20% that it's really the market had been running hot and and consumer confidence remains pretty low we had a we kind of had a summer peak when everyone started to travel and have some fun and uh consumer confidence really ticked up there was uh government mm-hmm. money coming into our our bank accounts and we were getting on airplanes again and and we were we were pretty happy but then what we've seen is we've seen more pessimistic pessimistic views on the markets but the market's still being up over 20%. And so while we don't feel good about the markets, we continue to buy and we continue to drive asset prices upward. Uh so having a pullback like we've seen I think is generally healthy but also I mean it should be it should be expected. I think when we look at things like variants or or announcements from the Fed, I, I mean I guess 
it just feels like people want a reason to to sell back or to take profits. Uh, Rob and I were talking a little bit about the the CEOs of large companies who have been selling back their stocks. And I think they're seeing the same thing. They're saying, wow, what a run we've had where things have moved up incredibly. Why not, why not pull back and take some profits and then, you know, look at other avenues to invest my money? It's interesting, you know, when people who run companies say, you know, maybe this market is highly valued and it's time to take some money off the table. We used to track insider trading very closely. And, uh, uh, insider trading, trading in the sense of, uh, you can watch the transactions of inside owners of company stocks. So this is not trading on inside information. This is, you can freely watch where people are, are, are selling because they have to file reports. The major owners of, of stocks and large companies have to file reports when they sell. And when they do that, it pops up as a little number on our screen. And then we get a C saying, Oh, are, are they net buyers of their company or are they sellers? And a lot, a lot of companies are sellers right now. And there, I mean, there's, there's buyers as well. I mean, I, I, I would also say, right, we, we do see the, the stock market highly valued. Uh, just an interesting sort of statistic I saw today was saying that, so with over 80% of the S&P 500 companies have reported earnings, we see that, I mean, earnings are up over 43% now that the 12% 12-month rolling basis comes from a pretty down period last year, which is COVID. But then the revenues for this quarter are up over uh, right around 19% which is uh, the most revenues ever reported by the S&P 500 companies. So there's there's still a lot of money flowing to these companies that, that are supporting some of these valuations. So, Kyle, when you get that information that companies are either buying or selling in large quantities, how do you react to that for – um, your clients that actually might have the, that kind of stock or, or invested in that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, gr- that's a great question. So, uh, what, what, what we do is, is you take the information and often there's, I mean, in the case of Microsoft, there was a very specific announcement around it and people sort of knew what was coming or, or be it Tesla. Now, uh, we get to see it on an aggregate basis. So you see whether it's not just the CEO, whether it's an aggregate basis of, you know, a large portion of the top ranking officials of the company are selling their stocks. And then we have to go in and, and we start a new analysis on that company and, and on that stock saying, what do their revenues look like? How are things trending or how are they tracking? And does this make sense as a hold or is it just, or is it just someone saying, hey, I've had a great run and I'm pulling back and taking some profits? Or is it actually something that we see that could be systematically wrong with the company? Right. And then you act accordingly, right? And then we act accordingly. Exactly. Okay. And there, I mean, there's, there's a variety of factors that acting accordingly uh Right. That's right. For, right. For, exactly. for different clients, right? Whether it's a taxable, non-taxable account, uh, there's 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 all these things we have to think about for each one of you. Sure. 
the amount of how much we have invested in it and how exactly. it will affect the overall mm-hmm, accounts. Mm-hmm. I just have one real quick question. I don't know if you guys can answer it. The real estate. Um, do we foresee this being um, um, the, I mean, the continuous, you know, the prices are going up, the, you know, how, how that's going to affect everything. Do we see it running for like another year or, I mean, is there any kind of prediction out there from anybody that, that says, you know, we're going to hit a ceiling and, you know, I mean, Arizona is like just going crazy over there. California is just insane anyway. Um, New Mexico is, is rising um, but I'm just wondering, is there is there a ceiling? Has anybody talked about that at all? One thing that's really or this, Lori, is this you, by the way? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, okay. Um, one thing that's really interesting that I was reading today is that we are in the midst of a five-year period of millennials hitting the age of 30, which right. is kind of the in first home buying period. And so we're in the middle of that. And as a result, there is, you know, not only with what's happening, people moving, you know, out of urban areas because of the pandemic, the ability to work remotely, but millennials can now buy their, buy a home for the first time. And so, um, and there's not enough to meet that demand. So that could continue for the next few years, uh, and have an okay. impact. And, and there is at the moment, there seems to be a slight decline, but that is also seasonal. We see that typically this time of year. So, um, you know, more remains to be seen as we go into 2022. I don't know, Kyle, if you've seen yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I, I would say uh, similar. I think what we're going to see is, uh, or at least what the analysts are predicting, is that there's going to be slower growth in real estate prices, but we're still going to see real estate prices moving upward is what the prediction's saying. There's a, a couple factors there, one being rising interest rates and in that the rates in which we're all refinancing our homes or purchasing new homes are going to be higher in the coming year, which should create some slowdown. It also creates additional pressure because you can't afford the same level of house that you could have with lower interest rates. And then there's also, there's a really strong pace at which the major home builders are producing new units that remain steady. And so there's, there's constantly new units that are coming onto the market, which should help to kind of at least hold prices from going up too quickly and so those are kind of the big factors that we're looking at that will slow down the accelerated pace of, of home prices. The, okay. the current median home price in the U.S. is up to $353,000. So that's a, that's a, a new record. Wow. In case, in case for those of you that like statistics, there's your statistic. <laughs> what do you say in commercial? Now, Steve, I would say I'm unprepared to answer your question. Okay. <laughs> but, I, but I'm happy to follow up, and, and perhaps Rob has some insight, because Rob, Rob deals a lot more with commercial properties. I do, and it depends on the area that you're talking about. In, in, in Manhattan, uh, there are areas where the rents have gone down and values have gone down, but there are, you know, if Amazon decides to put in a, fulfillment center, then they'll pay top dollar for a block. Um, 
We haven't seen a return to office like, you know, a lot of people are still working from home, so the demand for office space is down. And the interesting, this Thanksgiving, a lot of people went back to the stores in person, and a lot of companies, not in all industries, but some industries are now opening stores for the first time in four or five years. Um, so there, there's been a transformation of, of, of some malls to multi-purpose from just sort of big box stores. We've had a lot of transition of companies going out of business, especially in the retail area. Um, so commercial uh, and and the, you know, there's not a lot of, of new office buildings being built or factories being built. So I think there's there's a lag there while people wait to see how how the employment situation sort of translates out. Thank you. And Rob, what you're saying that, I mean, is it also too, is that um, companies, I mean, I've got friends that um, they are no longer going back into the um, the offices and because um, they don't need to. So that real estate that or the commercial offices that are now empty, are those is that something that is also driving the pricing and driving the availability for others because they don't they don't want the real estate because they don't need it because they've got their employees working from home and there's no need to have that. I think that's true in part. There's an offset about the incredible demand for warehousing space, distribution centers, um, repairs. You know, we have a sort of a dearth of, of people in the trades. You know, you, you, it's very difficult to find, you know, young people entering the, all of the trades. And, and if you're, if you're looking for someone to do some work, you're, you're, you're back, you're, you're waiting for quite right. some time. And that's not just in the repair, but in the new construction, uh, there's so, um, it's a different kind of space. The, the economy is, is changing. The sort of professional class, uh, office space may be declining and that may be a permanent thing because of the remote work for sort of knowledge based workers. Um, but there are a lot of people who miss the office uh, and they're finding a lower productivity among certain kinds of, uh, uh, uh professional work. Um, so again, and, and that, that sort of follows where the demographics, you know, Northern California, you know, is seeing a, an influx of people like leaving the, the, the quality of life in the Bay Area has declined to the point where, and also in Los Angeles, that I, I think the inland empire between Los Angeles and the Arizona border is the second fastest growing area in the country. You've had half a million people move from the coast of California to the inland part to get away from whatever, whatever it is. And it's, it's complicated. There's no one, one reason for it. Quality of life, length of commute, you know, remote learning, uh, education differences, housing prices. And I can add, you know, my uh, personal note, my parents live out in the Central Valley. And so I've watched over the last years as, and I grew up in the Bay Area. And so, you know, as you drove from the East Bay 
or San Francisco out toward the Central Valley, it was fairly wide open, most of that. And that area from where my parents live, uh, they live outside of Modesto all the way in, is filling with housing to that when I was there in August, you know, it was coming in closer and closer. And now I don't know if anyone knows where the Altamont Pass is, but right up there next to the Altamont, there's new housing being developed. Um, and people are commuting from as far into San Francisco. And this was pre-pandemic, but still happening. People are commuting from as far as Sacramento. They're commuting from as far south as Fresno believe it or not, because it's more affordable, again, quality of life, et cetera. Maybe I could just pause us for a second here, and we'll do our official thank you all for attending. The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.